You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny, with another Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm also with the Australian Studies Institute here at ANU and the School of Politics and International Relations, where my co-host Maria Tafaga, Dr. Maria Tafaga, comes from as well. She's a political scientist. How are you, Maria? Very well, Mark. How are you? I am well, although I'm starting to tire of the uh, the Canberra winter, I must say, and indeed the sort of the kind it's of. It's been so glorious this week. I mean, yeah. it has been pretty rough until yeah. now, but yeah, it's been like I said, yeah, it wears a bit thin after a while. <laughs> I'd like to see some leaves on the trees and a bit of warmth in the air, but anyway, no, no, uh, no need to complain. Now, look, anyone watching events in the U.S. at present, just as an example, can see plainly what happens when dollars drive politics, and when hyperpartisanship hollows out the middle, and. And when everything becomes political, when elections themselves in terms of the way they run, the courts, the police, uh, prosecutors, when everything's political, it really can feed a collapse of trust. Australia, of course, has its protections there. We have compulsory preferential voting, which is a critical sort of stabiliser, sort of forces politicians to you know, campaign toward the middle and to seek that kind of uh, mainstream vote. Uh, we have a federal independent electoral commission which runs elections, so we don't have any of the sort of shenanigans we've seen in the US, where where state political parties tend to run the elections uh, in the in in the various states, and this leads to uh, complaints or suspicion amongst voters that uh, untoward things are happening, and that of course can be then leveraged and weaponized as Donald Trump has has done. But we are not in Australia completely immune from polarization and from um, you know things like corruption, of course, as we know, there are there are um, uh, instances of that that are being investigated at the moment. Disinformation continues to be a major problem. So all of these things are, are, are matters that need to be taken very seriously in Australia, even if we do have some of those uh, institutional protections. Now, one of the people determined to do something about this is the independent member for Curtin in Perth, Kate Cheney, and I'm very pleased to say she's joined us here in Democracy Sausage. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you very much, Mark. It's really exciting to be here. 
Um, it's well, it, and it's great. Yeah, you know, you you spend so much time on the other side of the country where you live, and uh, we don't have people from Perth on the podcast in the studio, at least. Uh, occasionally, um, you know, um, have them remotely and so forth. But uh, of course, Parliament sitting, so that makes that much easier. And as a result of Parliament sitting or a function of it, you're able to introduce a private members bill, which you've done now. Um, and what have you called that? Uh, you've called it. Um, the Restoring Trust Bill. Yes, it's very. It's, I like the, the I like the names of these bills these days. You know, they they're very descriptive. The Restoring Trust Bill, and can you just briefly uh, tell us about what what its main tenets are? Sure. Um, so, before, twenty months ago, I was uh, not a politician and had nothing to do with politics really. And it was only after that that a community group asked me to run. And at that point, um, I really felt the declining trust that I had in politicians and there was sort of scandal after scandal and um, and you start to think, oh, I'm not convinced that politicians are actually making decisions in our best interests. Mm. Um, and, and what I discovered once I was involved and, and especially running as an independent was how um, our electoral rules um, uh, end up being driven to protect the status quo and there are a whole lot of things in there that um, that, that could be fixed. And, and this really underpins every other issue. So you want to know that politicians are making decisions in your best interest. So, so part of the bill is reducing financial influence. Um, you want to know who's funding your candidates before you actually vote. So part of the bill is improving transparency. And you want to make sure that there is actually competition for new political ideas and candidates. So the third part is levelling the playing field to make sure that we don't just get stuck in this duopoly. It's a really interesting point, isn't it, Maria, about this sort of uh, protecting the status quo because in a way, as I outlined in that introduction, we talk about our, our sort of institutional foundations as the great stabilisers, in a sense, protectors against the kind of wild populism that we see gripping, say, the US. But it does come at a cost, and that is that Within that stability, there's, there, there are sort of key players who are essentially protected from challenge by a whole lot of institutional norms and, and rules, things around, um, as Kate says, you know, donations and the, the, the special place that political parties have and indeed the preferential system itself. Absolutely. Um, so in political science, we call this the cartel party thesis, which um, dates from the mid-90s. And the essential idea is is essentially the sort of summary of the problems that Kate has identified that she wants to solve, which is that incumbent political actors essentially change laws to uh, entrench their position and make it harder for new competitive entrants to enter. Um, and also that what they do is they co-opt state resources, so basically money, mm. public financing and things like that. Or, for example, in Australia, the way that parties are exempted from most privacy laws and provisions um, is a sort of key dimension of that. Um, the fact that, um, you know, uh, I think about two or three years ago, they awarded themselves a lot of money to upgrade their security systems because they have um, accumulated lots of private information about voters, which is poorly secured. And, and I'm not against parties actually being able to protect this information, but it does raise the question why they um, are allowed to exempt themselves from normal privacy provisions whilst mm. castigating public companies and, <laughs> and, and, and mm. you know, and people who have had data breaches um, before and, you know, without 
about wanting to inspire hackers. Um, you know, it, it, it does sort of, it, it, it is actually an important dimension to the system's ability to renew. And if we didn't have our Senate voting system with its PR um, lower threshold, I, you know, it, you do call into question whether or not we would have as many new entrants in the, in the system over the last 40 years as we have. And I think most people would say that that competition has been to the good. Mm. Yeah, it's it's quite fascinating because the, the the sorts of things that I guess you could be referring to in terms of uh, the way they look at the their rulemaking role and what those rules look like and how they how they are reflected in them. We think about things like redistribution of electoral boundaries. You know, the major parties tend to have quite a strong role in making submissions and being able to appeal. Uh, proposed uh, boundary changes. The electoral commission itself uh, tends to have a mindset for um, for uh, the two party system. You know the the distribution or the spread between marginal seats, which are up for grabs, and safe seats, uh, is 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 crafted in such a way as to deliver a sort of level of continuity and stability in the system. Um, Again, very much a kind of a two-party mindset, and indeed the the two-party preferred system itself makes it quite hard for new entrants such as yourself, Kate, to to come in. It takes somewhat extraordinary circumstances almost to be able to break into those lower house seats. That's right, and I think as a newcomer, you bring um, you know a naive but fresh perspective, which is often useful when you're looking at existing institutions. Naivety is a great help when you're a, a candidate, actually, isn't well, it? Well, you come uh, in. You have to sort right. of think you're going to win. <laughs> that's right. But you also come in, and and I just saw a whole lot of things, and I thought that I thought, well, that's not right. That doesn't seem fair. Mm. And and in business. Um, we encourage competition and we don't like it when there's a duopoly. And in politics, I think we need to take a similar approach so that our political ideas and movements and philosophies are able to evolve and change and be open to to new ideas. So having come in and and I suppose you know one in unlikely circumstances, it does make you think, well you know what what could there could be improved in in this system? And some of those level playing field issues, are addressed in my bill, so part uh, including uh, removing privacy and spam act exemptions for political parties. Uh, another thing is the use of government of taxpayer money to fund government ads. Now, before every election, there's a spike in government advertising, at least double, um, and the you know the the graph looks pretty alarming. For example, before the last election, the coalition ran its positive energy campaign that it spent where it spent thirty one million dollars of taxpayer money trying to convince us that we weren't the worst OECD country on climate change and climate action. Um, I didn't feel a lot of positive energy at the time. No, I must admit. that's right. Oh, I'm glad they spent those resources uh, <laughs> advertising to us rather than doing something about it. Yeah, well, and 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 it, it's a terrible thing when you actually think about that at any length. I mean, it's it's you, you're having to put up with these ads, which is essentially, in some cases, at least com- contains a component of propaganda, and you're paying for it. You know, That's right. they, they can't even have they don't even have the. The decency to pay for it themselves. It adds insult to injury. Yeah, I and think. and this becomes one of what you've described as um, as I think the incumbency advantages, uh, and that's what your bill seeks to address, isn't it? A number of these ways in which parties that are already there, and particularly if they're in government, 
can essentially just tweak things to their own advantage. That's right. And I mean, I'm now an incumbent, so I, I stand to benefit from some of these incumbency advantages, but I still think that there needs to be a level playing field so so others can can come through. So at the moment, as you as you would well know, there's the, the Electoral Matters Committee that has actually sort of started to address some of these issues. I mean, I guess, where is that process up to and um, why have you decided to sort of introduce this bill at this, this time? So I sat on, I sit mm-hmm. on the Electoral Matters Committee um, as the only um, lower house crossbencher to, to be in that role. So I sat through the evidence and, and the submissions and, um, and I actually contributed additional comments to the report that came out. And this bill basically embodies my additional comments in, in that report. Um, there was also talk in the majority report about caps, donation caps and spending caps. And I, I started looking at, you know, how would we do this well um, and realised the more and more I looked into how we would allocate, uh, set caps, I realised it's really, really tough. And so I ended up saying, well, we're gonna, there is going to need to be further work done on that. But in the meantime, what are the, th- there are 13 changes here that have really broad support f- from the crossbench. Yes, I was going to make that point, actually. It's an important one to make that uh, the other crossbenchers, uh, the, the people generally identified as teal candidates, support this uh, this bill? Well, yeah, but it's not just the Teal candidates. It's it's also Di Lee turned up yesterday. The Greens were there. Helen Haynes, um, you know, David Pocock in the upper house. I spoke to Tammy Tyrrell, who was really comfortable with it. Um, it has you know pretty pretty broad right. support, but also think democracy think tanks, civil society organisations, and we engaged deeply in developing the bill. Um, in terms of the the process from the the electoral matters committee, I met with Don Farrell yesterday, the special minister for state, and um, I will continue to meet with him on a regular basis to talk about um, these issues, they, these potential reforms, and in, and ensure that some of those actually get included in the uh, legislative response that the government has to to that um, committee report. So, you know, it, it's in it's in process, but there is a real danger with the setting of caps that you achieve the benefit of taking money out of politics, fantastic, but you actually create another problem because it's expensive to get your name out there and name recognition is a big part of running a campaign. Um, So there's a danger that that if we set caps at the wrong level or with the wrong structure, it just embeds the two-party system and and reduces political Or makes politics a rich person's game. That's right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, a critical thing that needs needs to be considered because you can't have a situation where someone who uh, is, you know, a professional, for example, is able to uh, plough a bit, fair bit of money of their own money into a campaign, just starts well ahead of other worthy candidates who don't have that sort of, uh, don't come from that kind of wealthy background. That's right. And I think Clive Palmer is sort of the, the yeah. example there that everyone's pretty sure that we don't want a whole lot of that happening in our democracy. No, um, we do not. But even, I mean, I was in the very fortunate position that I could take four months off work without pay to run a quite short campaign. Um, but there aren't very, you know, there are lots of people who can't take big chunks of time off off work without pay. Quite right, and we don't want the parliament to be made up from of of just one section of the community. Exactly. Um, so want... trying to level that out, yeah. I think, is a, a really important um, guiding principle that that needs to drive the legislative response to to the committee report. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like the implementation of of some of these issues is actually really tricky. Um, you know, and I mean, lots of people are really attracted to truth in advertising. 
housing, but it is really difficult to actually implement. I mean, has the has the committee or or your sort of the network of of people around you actually got ideas about how to actually achieve that, for example? Yeah, so the bill includes truth in advertising and it uses the model that Zali Stegall um, uh, developed and put into a private member's bill last year. Um, and I agree it's difficult. And one, the, the big question, of course, with truth in ad- advertising is who gets to decide what the truth is. Indeed, yeah. indeed, yeah. But there's a model that's being used in South Australia that, that seems to be working pretty well. I think um, when you if you do that model, no matter who ends up on that panel, and obviously it needs to be an independent panel or body, um, it needs to take a pretty conservative approach. So it would only look at things that are being held out as facts that can be proven to not be facts. And, and that conservative approach, I think, would build up faith over over time. Um, there's how, some how quickly could it act? Because, because uh, you know, obviously within the dynamic environment of an election period, mm. the period leading up to the campaign, the formal campaign itself, that's when, as we can see in this country right at the moment, and we can probably talk about The Voice a bit later, but... Um, you know, public opinions can be shaped by disinformation, by lies, by misrepresentations. If the sanction for that or the adjudication of it is some sort of machinery that needs to be swung into action and so forth, would would this, I mean, we'll come back to donations as well with the whole concept of real-time matters, but would this be in real time? Look, I don't know. I mean, I think It'd this is the conversation be, that we need to be having and no doubt whatever model we came up with would be imperfect, but mm. I think it's got to be better than nothing because at the moment if you're running a business, you're not allowed to be misleading or deceptive. If you're running a political campaign, you can say whatever you like. And, and I think so even though there will be challenges with implementation, we have to come back to those first principles that people actually should be able to believe that something held out to be a fact in a political campaign is a fact. So, you know, the real time or the uh, responsiveness and agility of that would be one challenge because we'd have to balance that against due process and appropriate research to make sure that uh, it's not and freedom of expression. Shadows. I mean, we look at what Trump's arguing at the moment in relation to the outrageous things he said in the aftermath of the election in 2020. And, um, you know, he's running the, the free speech uh, um, defence. I mean, it's essentially the, the sort of foundation of his defence for all of the things, whether he said it to Mike Pence or leaning on governors to overturn results or find votes or whatever. His defence team is arguing he believed that the election had been stolen, that he had been uh, the subject of malfeasance and rorting. And as a result of that, he was acting in good faith and the and the constitution guarantees free speech. We don't have the same kind of fundamentalism about those things, but we do have an implied right of free speech in political communication. Um, we do. And, and I, I don't think you know anyone wants to um, curb free speech, but there is a common sense approach that can be taken to that too. That if There is, but I'm just thinking if it's not real time, then it has to be balanced by serious sanction in, in sort of retrospect. So whilst you might not be um, hauled over the coals for certain misrepresentations you're making during an election debate or whatever it might be, uh, you know, the next day or even before polling day, Doing so knowingly, if it doesn't have any sort of serious penalty, it just, you know, if it, if it doesn't result, in, for example, in overturning the election or or uh, or some serious mm-hmm. fine or whatever, and then of course you get into whole questions about, like with Trump, whether it was whether it's a lie if you truly believe it to be the case, you know, intent, the question of intent. Absolutely, and what I would like to see 
is this conversation being had not just on podcasts but in Parliament. You know, let's actually have yes. have that discussion about balancing Wouldn't these be as important good, but, principles. You know. <laughs> well, obviously not. Balancing these important principles against each other and, and, and coming up with something. And I think the South Australian model is a good place to start. You know, we've got something, we're trying it. It doesn't seem to be, you know, the world has not ended um, take it from there, but but at least um, you know do these things, do these common sense. And there are thirteen reforms here that have you know broad support and seem like common sense. And so I see these this as being a baseline for the sort of reform that we need. And we can thrash out the details. I believe the parliamentary process should make legislation better. I'm not saying this is perfect, but let's actually get in there and do it. It's a lovely idea. <laughs> uh, and and look, you know, to be fair, it, it does happen. It does happen quite a lot that the parliamentary process does improve bills. We see amendments made, in particularly in the Senate, um, you know, where the government needs votes um, uh, to legislation, uh, and and those amendments very often are improvements uh, as a result of different perspectives being brought in. So, yeah, it would be nice to see more private members' bills make it through those stages of debate and and have those. Uh, those considerations added in, but uh, it doesn't always occur, unfortunately, because going back to the point we were all making, the system's sort of skewed to favour those who are exercising power and they tend to control the agenda in power. Well, and, and realistically they, they have actually. Like I think um, the last two attempts at donation reform ultimately ended up in the two major parties colluding to to um, to make a deal that was a better fit for them. Yeah, so. that they could cop, yeah. Yeah. It's true. And I think that it can be disheartening to look at that. But then we have some fantastic examples like Helen Haynes' integrity bill. Now, she put forward an integrity commission bill um, as a private member's bill um, and it, it just influenced the conversation. It and, did, and, and it sort of became, in a sense, the uh, you know formed a spine of what became the legislation in the end, although, interestingly, the government did a deal with... The, with the opposition there um, to get that through the lower house. But it is a whole lot better than anything that was on the table Absolutely. before. And I think she, by, by introducing Both that houses, private I members say. bill yeah. and saying here is a thing that can be done, it means that the conversation can be about, well, why aren't we doing it like that? And you have a model to test other suggestions yes. against. Yeah. In, in in real politic terms, like bills like this are, um, like they demonstrate that Parliament does remain like an important platform, mm. and it, and it also for anyone who wonders why you should vote for a non-party actor, it's a really good example of why that might be the case because they might surface issues that are awkward for someone who is operating under party discipline, yeah, um, who is seeking and to to achieve collective goals and aims. It's a very good point. You probably find there's there's quite a few MPs uh, on on either side, backbenchers, sometimes perhaps even ministers who privately agree with a number of these things but aren't able to speak because th th that's not their area within the party um, or that's not the party policy, you know, there's a sort of a general line. So I think Parliament is just so vastly improved by the uh, by the inclusion of new voices such as your own. And Let's he take, Helen Haynes yesterday made the point, she said, I defy any parliamentarian to actually argue against these 13 common sense reforms. Now, they won't have to if they're sitting on a backbench. That's and how they, they argue they against it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. They argue against it by making sure that it doesn't actually come to a full debate. Exactly. Um, let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage from the ANU. We're talking with Kate Cheney. Um, Maria, fascinating kind of possibilities here with, with some of these reforms. Donation reform in particular is one, uh, uh, you know, I think everyone understands this concept, the idea of money playing a role in politics. I think you say, Kate, that only 27% of, of, of money that funds the, the party, the major parties over recent years is actually able to be attributed to Known sources, is that correct? It's actually 21%. 21? Yeah, and that, that's of private funding, so there's public funding, but of the money that doesn't come from government, over the last 20 years, 21% of major parties' revenue has come from declared donations where, where it actually identifies where it's so come from. So that's one in one in $5 is accountable. That's That right. could mean that the other four, I mean, theoretically, could mean that the other four all comes from donations under the declaration threshold um it you know, well there are different micro donations yeah there's them. also uh there there in it's divided into useful categories such as undisclosed and <laughs> other receipts very specific um, also subscriptions but that may include $35,000 subscriptions to a business forum yeah um so there really is an an astonishing lack of can, transparency. Can you, I mean, you talk about it being called dark money, but can you actually just tell listeners, like, what do you, what, what is actually kind of meant by that? Like, what are the ways or the means by which parties might raise money that isn't donating on the, you know, party's website? Yeah, so there are a whole lot of different ways. And, and the problem is, you know, it's hard to know which are the biggest problems because it's entirely hidden. But we know that parties hold fundraising dinners where they charge $14,000 for your meal. Um, now, clearly, most of that is a donation and, and not payment for your beef or chicken. So, um, but it's not declared as, as that. Subscriptions to business forums or, you know, other sort of membership-based ideas that, that – or, you know, concepts that are that are really donations. Um, another thing that happens is donation splitting. So it, just below the radar, of just below the, the threshold, which is now $16,300, um, and, and then putting it through uh, different types of entities that are related to the party. Or like donating $15,000 to each state division, for example. That's right, yeah. exactly. And, and there are, I think there are about 70 or 80 uh, separate entities that are part of the coalition. So theoretically, you could These actually- These are fundraising vehicles in a sense. That's right. Yeah. So you, 500 clubs, 200 clubs, you things could like split that. Your, you, could, you could donate a million, more than a million dollars, but split it into parcels of $14,000 um, to different entities, and it would be completely under the radar. And we see in America, they've got these public action committees um, that, that 
essentially are ways around this uh, so that um, lots of money gets you know channeled into these things and we've we've got sort of variations on that theme in Australia and as you say this this tendency that uh, the parties have which is particularly useful in government and think about that for a moment you know, to to hold dinners for example where business people can sit shoulder to shoulder with the treasurer or the prime minister uh, for a significant wedge of dough and bend their ear about whatever it is that they would like to see out of government policy and build those relationships. And uh, I ended up in the federal court myself after reporting or being involved in the reporting of one of these stories. Um, um, uh, the governments are quite sensitive about it, but, I mean... It doesn't what, pass what, the pub test. Well, what worries me about it and worried me about it at the time is the notion that essentially we're paying these people's salary. We're, this is our government. We're paying its its salary and, and the treasurer, the prime minister... Uh, you know, deputy prime minister, whoever it is, defence minister, all of these people are then essentially using that status and that power, that the, the authority vested in them by the by the people and the parliament, to raise money for their political purposes. And one example that I think sums up a lot of these issues is um, PWC traditionally has uh, hosted the post budget dinner that the government uh, ministers all go to after the dinner. Now, PwC puts on the food and the venue, so their their in-kind donation is relatively small. Uh, tickets then become a donation to the, the, par- the government or the party that's in government at the time. And in exchange for those tickets, PwC clients, who they offer the tickets to, get to go and sit and talk to the treasurer just after he's handed down the budget. Um, now this is a you know a win-win in terms of government and mm. um, and the host of the dinner PwC in this case, but you wouldn't say it's a win for all all of Australia. Um, and, and I mean I think we can make our own decisions about which of these things we think are okay, but transparency is a really good place to start. Transparency is a terrific place to start, and 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 real time reporting of donations as well, uh, which I suppose is the transparency. But but that that moment that people have to confront, which is when they write out the cheque or however it's done these days, uh, they have to think this will become public straight away. That's uh, right. And one of the things, so when I ran my campaign, you know, coming in with the, with, with the freshness, I thought, well, of course people should be able to see where the money's come from. So we built a website in a week and if you made a donation, it instantly appeared on the website. Now you could tick, tick a box to say that you wanted to remain anonymous because that was what the law said, but 90% of my donors disclose their name and that just appeared in real time on my website. Now there were journalists who were refreshing that and seeing who's given to the campaign now um, and some scrutiny that came with that that my my opponent had zero scrutiny. Mm. Um, I was shocked to find out that you don't find out even even the small oh, proportion yeah. of disclosed defin- uh, donations until, in this case, 10 months after the election when mm. it's way too late to decide whether it's going to affect who you vote for. Sometimes well, we it's all, longer. We all remember when Malcolm Turnbull donated $1.75 million of his own money in that 2016 election campaign and it was, I think it was 10 months or 14 yeah, months. Yeah, even 18 months later, yeah. Yeah, that we, that we found out about that donation and... I think it's fair to say, and I remember writing this at the time, that that would have been because it was among the most, it was among the largest donations to a political party from an individual in Australian history at that time. Um, 
I think people would have been interested to know about that in the context of the election campaign, but it was not required to be declared in any way until January of uh, the, the following year, I think. So if people want to vote for someone who's getting their money from gambling companies or fossil fuel companies, um, you know, that's their choice, but they need to actually have that choice and know before they vote. Yeah. So that just seems like complete common sense to me and I can't believe that there's any resistance to that and it hasn't it hasn't been done. So you're proposing that the donations threshold go from the current 16,300, I think it is, to 1,000. Yeah, to 1,000 and to be um, disclosed within five business days. Now, we've said five business days because, you know, I understand that there's an administrative burden to actually disclosing that, but um, it really shouldn't be that hard and, and I think it's a pretty reasonable request that, that parties uh, manage their infrastructure in a way that makes that possible. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm sure if they wanted to that they, they could. And one of the other ones I'm sort of interested in here is um, to prohibit, prohibit unions and various corporate entities from making donations without member or shareholder um, approval. Would that also sort of, I guess, affect Australia's equivalent of, of PACs, you know, so Climate 200? Um, how might that impact, I guess, the timeliness of donations? Yeah, so on the – so. Interestingly, half of all OECD countries ban corporate donations full stop. Um, now, in Australia, there's some doubt about whether that might raise constitutional issues to ban corporate donations entirely. So this is really a compromised position to say, well, at least uh, it should be done with member approval, whether it's union members or, or corporate shareholders. Um, the It doesn't quite deal with the PAC model because... Um, presumably, the, the, the mischief this, that this aims for is um, companies or unions making donations that may not have, have the consent of, of their members where the money mm -hmm. comes from. Presumably in a pack, people who give to that pack know that the, the purpose of the, uh, of the donation is to actually make those donations. So it's a bit of a different mm -hmm. issue. Um, but this seems like a reasonable um, compromise on, you know, for, for corporate corporations. And the UK requires this, that you get uh, shareholder approval before making political donations. In the UK, it has greatly reduced the, the number of corporate donations because when you have to sit down and explain to your shareholders what benefit you hope to gain from making political donations, things can get a bit awkward. Does it apply to, uh, would it apply, should it apply to issues like the one the country faces at the moment that's in relation to the referendum or would it just apply to election campaigns and, and electoral matters because we wouldn't want to see a situation, unless you're perhaps Peter Dutton, where companies aren't able to make donations in respect of the environment, in respect of uh, this, this critical question of, um, of, of social national unity and advancement that we're mm. facing with The Voice. Um, I mean, Dutton complains about woke corporates and, uh, of course, the Libs have long complained about Labor having this this uh, conduit of money flowing to it from the unions. So at some levels you would expect the Conservatives to kind of like this like this proposal because, you know, it, it, it would place some requirements on unions, for example, on Labor to secure from unions the approval to have those those dues that are that have long funded the Labor Party. Well, that's right, and I guess you, you can't have it both ways. You know, if if, um, if you object to, I mean, the example that you give about the referendum, I think that's it's an interesting one, um, and 
you know, this reform is really focused on election campaigns because I think buying influence uh, with with government is the the, the, the mischief object, that yeah. we're trying to yeah. solve here. Yeah, good point. Um, I mean, so but on something like the voice. Um, if if someone says yes, that should also apply to referenda, then you'd have to say that they they will have to also be comfortable with getting shareholder approval for all corporate donations. So so some you know consistency. Yeah. I mean, in the case of companies that have donated to to the Voice, uh, I I think if they did have to get shareholder approval, they would, probably would because it's consistent with their long term commitments yeah. to reconciliation. Yeah, I think that's right, but um, it's it's an interesting one. I guess one of the things that I'm quite interested in um, around the sort of level of the playing field is is the sort of issues raised around independent campaigns versus political party campaigns. So I suppose, um, you know, from your perspective as an independent, um, you know, what barriers to entry are you sort of facing that you want to see levelled? Mm. And the problem with this stuff is it's pretty technical and, you know, gets a bit boring. So I think, you know, yeah. one, of the, one of the challenges is actually – um, communicating that there, it is an uneven playing field, um, which is made up of the death by a thousand cuts, lots of little barriers that are yeah. put in place. So, um, for example, uh, when you're running a campaign, as I learned, um, you eventually you get access to the electoral roll. And it's a big, you know, you can now come in and get the electoral roll. So I went into the city and picked it up and it's a big fat book with names and addresses in it. Um but if you're the incumbent, you've got an electronic version of that, which makes it much easier to actually contact voters. We didn't really know what to do with this big telephone book without telephone numbers in it. Um, mm. and, and, so, and so those sorts of barriers, so the things that make it harder to access voters, similarly the timing of the exemption from the do not call register is different if you're an independent or if you're in, in a party, um, and the, the when you have to report is different as well. So... Um, so there are all these little administrative barriers. And so one of the things in the bill is to develop the idea of an independent campaign entity that effectively attracts all the benefits that are built into a, a um, political party entity um, once you reach a certain threshold. So, for example, you you show that you've got the support of 100 voters in the, in the electorate to run um, just so that you're not starting, uh, you know, with, with a, um, a disadvantage from the very beginning. I, so yeah, I mean, this is interesting um, to me at least. And I guess my devil's advocate question is: is you know, cranks, right? Like lots, lots of people run as independents in campaigns, and 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 um, most of them are not as storied as as yourself, for for example. Um, and uh, I suppose I, you know, is there is there a risk in creating uh, such easy access to the electoral roll as just one consideration that mm. we might actually create a worse problem for for voters in particular. It's definitely an issue that we thought about and mm -hmm. and I think you know I'm very open to discussions about what that hurdle should be but the idea would be create one hurdle to prove your um, your legitimacy and and your broad support and then um, and then make it a level level playing field rather than having all these different hurdles for all these different um, you know aspects of, of running a campaign. So, for example, you wouldn't want a real estate agent to be able to um, you know register as an independent and then get access to the electoral roll. Uh, at the moment, 
AEC says most of the people who come in and check the a, the electoral roll are real estate agents. Um, so it's already there, but it's a more manual process. Yeah. But but I think by requiring a minimum number of signatures and a stat deck that you intend to run, um, then we can try and ensure that we find the balance between um, allowing competition in our political environment but also, um, you know, avoiding unintended consequences. Yeah, and I mean, like, I think that kind of goes to show to some of the changes that have been made to obtaining party status, i.e. making it harder because of this sort of problem of the proliferation of all of these sort of micro parties. And and there is an interesting kind of dynamic right now which exists where um, someone like yourself needs to find 100 people to say that you're a bona fide independent candidate, but anyone running under one of our smaller parties at the moment um, you know, like Centre Alliance or One Nation or um, uh, the United Australia Party um, doesn't because they have they have party status and and you can kind of see how that yeah uh, may be an issue. And that's another thing that is addressed in the bill is that uh, registration of new candidates would require a hundred signatures as well, whether you're an independent or you're in a party, so that people can't be either parachuted in if they don't have any community support, um, or as we saw in the last electorate, just random names put on the uh, on the ticket. Um, that no one's ever heard of or, or sees through the, the whole of the campaign. So proving a minimum level of community support should be a prerequisite whether whether you're in, in, a, in a party or not. Look, it's been really terrific to hear about this. Can we just go quickly before we let you go to a couple of other issues? Um, one is uh, I just wanted to get your sense of how you think the parliament's working sitting there in the lower house. Uh, there was a lot of talk at the start of the new parliament about you know lifting it above the tone above what it had been in in previous terms. It's got pretty robust at times. Of course, that's fair enough. It's a sort of an adversarial chamber in in a sense. But what's what's your feeling about how it is, and also the extent to which the crossbench has access? I, I see quite a few crossbench bench questions get asked much more than was the case in the past. Uh, are crossbenchers generally happy with the um, participation they get in question mm. time, for example? Yeah, so the, I'll do the second bit first. The, the allocation of questions is very much linked to our, the size of our representation in Parliament. So it's all mathematically valid. And so we get three questions in each question time. Mm. Um and and I think we're we're happy with that, and that that seems fair. In terms of um, how the parliament's operating, I think we got off to a pretty good start, um, and I, I've been fairly happy with it. Question time still leaves a huge amount to be desired. It and, certainly does. And I'm working with other crossbenchers. We're working through all the appropriate processes to try to get some improvements made to question time. This incidentally is another one that we could have mentioned the way of the advantages of incumbency. I mean. Political parties that are not in power, you know, that are in opposition, like to talk or at least flirt with the idea of question time reform. But when you're in power, they take all the advantages of incumbency and all of those Dorothy Dixes that get asked, which are a waste of time mm. and which are a, a sort of a kabuki play, a pantomime that we have to all sit through. Um, they just extend the whole thing out. If you look at uh, question time in the House of Commons, for example, it's very rapid fire. Mm. You know, the the, the 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 questions are short, the answers are short, and they come sometimes in sustained patches from just the opposition leader, and then and then from around the, the house. And people are genuinely jockeying, trying to stand up to get the speaker's attention. Ours is 
highly formulaic, rigid. It's, uh, you know, this sort of alternating from side to side of the house thing. And it's uh, it's it's just another advantage of incumbency, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it. Um, I mean, the the fundamental principle behind question time is a good one that government should have to be accountable and be able to respond to issues of the day. And that the chief executive, uh, the, the the prime minister or the president, and I say that because this is one of the problems with the US system where the president is never accountable, and it's just a, you know, it's just such a ridiculous system. Uh, our system actually does, at least on paper, work. Yeah, that's right. But then being in, I mean, the first day sitting in question time, I, I was exchanging looks with my fellow new crossbenchers and I was literally thinking, I cannot believe I'm going to have to sit through this every single day <laughs> because it just is completely different to the vibe of most of the rest of what happens in Parliament. I sit on committees that are pretty collaborative and civil and then it turns into this theatre of attack and, and on the floor there's a lot of mushering and um and you know, chipping people and jeering and laughing Banter, and, and right. stuff that you would not get away with in any other context. In it's in really Australian good society. that primary school children are taken to watch it too. It is, although you can't really. You have to actually be down on the floor to hear most of it. And um, in the front row of the where the press gallery sits, you can pick up a fair bit that doesn't get picked up on television. Mm. But I've spoken to you know colleagues of yours, but also some of the parliamentary staff, the Hansard people, and these types who are sitting on the floor and they say what you can hear, you know, when you're down in the middle there is even another level and that's what you're referring to, I guess. And I, I don't think it does anything for rebuilding people's faith in our democratic system. Uh, you know, we should be having sensible, substantive questions about things that we need information on rather than, as you say, the Dorothy Dixes of tell us why the government's great coming from one side. Yeah. And then what we usually see is a political attack theme of the day mm. with a whole lot of questions, you know, pushing, really asking the same question 20 yeah. different ways. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I, I might be biased, but I reckon you do get the three cross-bench questions in there that actually are seeking answers. Is it is it designed, do you think that culture, if, if a culture can be said to be in charge of design, but is it designed to sort of intimidate? Is it an intimidatory atmosphere on the floor of the house? Oh, I think it's um, it's theatre and it's letting off steam and it's a bit of um, role playing almost. Yeah, a bit yeah. of role play and and people who have been there for a long time say, oh come on, you know, it's a bit of fun. That's that's the culture. That's how it is. But being part of a group who are new to it, we we do think well, this could just be done so much better. So mm. we'll we'll keep prosecuting that and yeah. keep trying to drive improvements. But as any culture change, it will take a long time and we'll have to keep chipping it away at it. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is just on the on the voice. And and there's been a particular focus in your home state of WA on those heritage laws. I don't can't say that I fully understand those laws, but they've only been in five weeks and they're now being rescinded again because I think, you know, that was pretty bad kind of intersection between the political criticism of that and the voice, which is, of course, a federal issue and completely separate, but they tended to be conflated. And the, the waters have been very muddied. The Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act um, in WA, there's been an obligation for 40 years in WA not to damage um, significant cultural sites. Um, 
And the, then, then we had Jook and Gorge and so there was obviously a need to change something because they weren't working properly. Um, the intent of the Act was to actually simplify that process um, but I think because it wasn't being enforced previously, it feels like it's, it's, a, it's new obligations. Um, the rollout was not managed well. Um, but you've got, we were talking before about misinformation and disinformation. There's been a lot of deliberate mischief making, hasn't there? Absolutely. About, about these laws being able to be used to take people's backyards and Absolutely. This kind of stuff. And a lot of, you know, there are media stories saying this tree planting event was stopped because of the Abor Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, which was just completely Leave not wrong. true. Bollocks, yeah. yeah. Um, so the combination of confusion plus intentional misinformation has meant it's a little bit of a, a mess. And I think it's the right decision to pull back and start that process more collaboratively because it was really muddying the waters on what is a much bigger issue, and that is the, the voice to parliament. At an event I was doing with Megan Davis in recent days, someone stood up and said they'd just come back from WA and this person said every everyone they spoke to was hostile about the voice and either didn't understand it and was proposing to vote against it or did understand it and was mentioning heritage laws and other kinds of things, you know, basically a whole lot of spurious arguments. Uh, do, you th do you have a sense? I mean, it's hard. I know this is just a guess in a way, but do you have a sense about the culture of WA being different from perhaps other places? More hostile to to this change? Oh, I think definitely the recent Cultural Heritage Act hasn't helped because it's sort of created fear and, and confusion. Um, and there is a lot of misinformation out there. Um, the thing that I've found in door knocking and, and having conversations is a lot of people just haven't turned their mind to it at all, really, and they will in the weeks before it's coming up. Um, and when you actually get a chance to talk to someone and talk about um, you know, the, the evidence that a lot of the scare campaigns are just not accurate. What I find is people take a pretty, com you know, can take a pretty common sense approach. I mean, and something that I find resonates is we are really bad at developing policy to, um, to address the issues of colonisation and support Aboriginal people. When you're really bad at something, you get advice. Mm -hmm. um, this is a committee that can give advice. And it is actually that simple. Um, and so I think there is there is cut through um, when people have those conversations. Um, but there's work to be done in in cutting through all the noise, all the the fear. Um, and fear is much easier to spread than hope. Um, but I think as we come closer to the referendum, people will think about it more. And I think that common sense will prevail. So you still have positive. a level of confidence about this? Yeah, I do. Do you think, do you think just very quickly, the government has done well so far or would you like to have seen more, more energy, more front-footedness from the government? Oh, it's really tricky because um, I do think that the thing about a referendum is that it's not about politicians. Um, it is about people. And but no change has happened in this country before of any significance without political leadership. And this does not have bipartisan support. So. No, and that's a, that is a real problem. I, I mean, I think the, the lack of bipartisan support is very, very sad. And um, I cannot understand the rationale of the Liberal Party to, to take this angle. I don't think it's driven by uh, a genuine belief uh, on the substance. I think it is driven by political um, opportunism, opportunism, and, and I think that that will backfire in a in a big way. Uh, whether whether the 
um, country decides yes or no, I don't think it's going to be a good political outcome um, for the opposition. Um, uh, what I what I have liked seeing is the community um, level support and volunteer groups building up around the country. As I found out in you know in my campaign, I had no one with any political experience in my campaign. Is that right? Yeah, grassroots campaigning is shambolic and messy, and you work it out as you go along, and you make mistakes, and it might take a while to get off the ground. Um, but there are people all over the country who want to help out, want to get involved, and I think that it will that momentum will build over time. Kate, it's been a great pleasure having you on Democracy Sausage. I'm already looking forward to the next time we we have you on. Uh, it's been a really terrific conversation. Me too. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Kate. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. I look forward to talking to you again next week. Uh, until then, bye for now. 